Many of you probably have seen the, the movie um, Monty Python and Holy Grail. Not sure I re recommend some parts are a little weird, um, but a lot of parts are really funny. You see those parts and quotes all over the place. Um, so they come, to, as they're on their quest, they come to this bridge. It's the bridge of eternal peril, uh, the crossing over the abyss. I'm sorry, the abyss of eternal peril. Uh, there's a bridge keeper there, and in order for them to cross, they have to answer a series of questions. If they get any one of those three questions, if they get any one of those questions wrong, they get tossed into the, the abyss of eternal peril. Right, so Lancelot goes up there, and he's like, you know, what's your name? Lancelot, he gets that right. Whew, a little relief. What's your quest? I seek the Holy Grail. Uh, and then, then he asks the third question. He said, what's your favorite color? Lancelot says, blue. He's like, all right, go ahead. You're all set. You can cross. So Lancelot's all set, and then the, the next knight comes up. He said, what's your name? What's your quest? And then he asks the third question. It's always on the third question. It gets a little dicey. He goes, what's the capital of Assyria? And the guy says, I don't know that. And he goes, ah, he gets tossed into the abyss. And night after night, and then there's Sir Galahad. So Ga Sir Galahad obviously forgot what his favorite color was because he said blue, but he actually meant yellow, and he gets tossed into the abyss. Finally, King Arthur comes forward. He says, what's your quest? You know, what's your name? And then he asks the question, what's the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? Then Arthur turns to him, he goes, do you mean a, a European or an African swallow? And he said, the bridge keeper says, I don't know, and he gets tossed into the abyss, and the rest of them can cross without any issue at all. Answer correctly, you get to go. Answer wrongly, you get tossed into the abyss. The guy who does this illustration says that we've kind of minimized the gospel to this. To a bunch of right answers. That when asked the question, if we get those right, then God's just going to be like, okay, you're all set. You can get right into heaven. Go right ahead. Uh, we call this easy believism. Now, don't get me wrong. We're going to go and we're going to delve into some things here. It's going to make us wonder. We are eternally secure when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. From that moment on, you and I are going to heaven. However... Jesus talks about what that means, what it looks like to actually believe in him, what it looks like to actually trust in him, and it's more than just answering a series of questions correctly. We have to understand that. We have sometimes reduced the gospel to, to saying a sinner's prayer, to answering yes and no on a little sheet and saying we are all set. I get shocked every time I see the polls out there. Because those people are answering that question, are you a born-again believer? Yes, yes, yes. And, and the percentage is obscene. If that were the case, America would be turned on its head because of Christians. But these people answer yes and answer these, these questions correctly, and then they live like they've never met Jesus in their entire life. Or they know nothing of the truth that he speaks in the Bible that we read every Sunday. People live lives contradictory to his word, to what he has taught. They do not live according to his commands. They do not live according to his truth. Therefore, raising the question, what is it that they believe about him? And do they really believe the Jesus that is presented to us throughout the Gospel of John? Many profess 
but not many believe. Here we have before us the test of discipleship. Many believed in his name last week. You see at the end of the verse, Jesus then qualifies what it actually means to be a true disciple of his. Throughout the gospel, we've seen it. There's a distinction. There are those who believe with quotes, and then there are those who believe, who truly trust in Jesus Christ. This is the difference between some sort of superficial or surface faith some sort of profession, some sort of checking off the box, and actually placing our lives in Jesus' hands. Trusting him, believing in his truth, believing in his gospel, and everything that he has said that we've read so far. Today, we're going to be talking about this and what the test of a true disciple, what what a true disciple looks like. And I'll tell you something, it is all in relationship to his word to what he says, to what you and I have been reading week after week after week as we go through this Gospel of John. So I see three characteristics that you and I are going to be looking at today. Three characteristics to test the true discipleship in relationship to Jesus' words. So the first characteristic is they dig in. They dig in. So verses 31 and 32, read along with me. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Everyone probably has heard the last part of that verse uh, numerous times. I don't know if you've ever seen the miniseries Band of Brothers. Uh, It's been on TV for quite some while. It's about the story of Easy Company. U.S. Army Airborne uh, Paratrooper Division and their World War II operations in Europe. Uh, It's based on historian Stephen Ambrose's nonfiction book. In episode six, Easy Company is surrounded, surrounded by a bunch of people, by a bunch of enemies. It's cold, they're short on ammunition, and it is winter near the Belgian town of Bastogne a crucial position in the Allied defensive line battle during the Battle of Bulge, which lasted from 1944 in December to January 1945. There's a guy, Eugene Rowe, one of the three company uh, medics. He's scuttling to save lives as he searches for morphine, scissors, and bandages. So Easy Company is in the foxholes. They're in the, on the front line. They are dug in. And then the medic discovers Joe Toy. There he is, sitting in his foxhole, and he has his boots off in the dead of winter. The medic, Roe, looks at Joe's limp, discolored, and frostbitten feet. And he tells Joe that you're in big trouble. You're going to get gangrene, and you're going to lose them. In this condition, Joe could have easily been taken off the front line. Could have been pulled out of the foxhole. Take him back to a nice warm hospital where he can get three squares a day. He looks at the doctor in a straight face and he says, Doc, I ain't coming off this line. Later on, he lost his right leg when he was hit by a barrage of enemy fire while shouting to his men and his company to take cover. 
who was awarded the Silver Star. Easy Company actually went on. If you're familiar with the movie Eagle's Nest, where they invaded Hitler's mountaintop fortress. Classic, I think John Wayne, classic John Wayne. Uh, but anyway, they go on, they move forward, all because they did what? Stayed. Stayed in their position. No matter what. Why, why use that illustration? Well, folks, there's a battle that you and I are in right now. And I'll tell you what, that front line is creeping closer and closer and closer to the church in America. You know what that battle is over? The battle is over what you and I have been reading week after week here every Sunday. It's over the truth. It's over the truth of the gospel. It's over the truth of Jesus' words. And there are people who are abandoning that truth left and right. Going back to their warm comforts of their own homes. Going back to the, the safety behind the front lines because they are disregarding and they are not believing, and they are not continuing, they are not remaining, they are not abiding in the truth of what Jesus says here. It's a battle. Jesus does an if-then clause. And I, I just love what Jesus says here because we've seen this multiple times in this, in this gospel, haven't we? Does Jesus get all excited about these new believers when it says many believed in him? Now, it's kind of hard to distinguish whether or not there was actually some believers there. Um, and then he just then turns to the Jews who believed in him. But uh, commentators kind of disagree on that. But we know, we know that now he turns to this group of people. So he probably saw as he's talking and as he's revealing the truth about himself, these guys are getting excited, right? And they, they give some sort of indication that they believed, now notice, does Jesus, is Jesus like, hey, that's great, I got my people back? Because remember, he lost all those people back in John chapter 6. And he's, is he putting their, his arms around them and being like, hey, this is great, guys. Come on along with me. No, what does he do? He turns to them and he actually qualifies that belief. That's unheard of in the evangelical church. We're just, we're, we're grabbing people. We're like, yeah, they, they say the name Jesus. We're like baptizing them, dunking them. We're putting them in, putting them on the membership rolls and giving them ministries to do. Jesus qualifies their belief and he says, look, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what's going to show that you are a true disciple of mine. If you stay with my truth, if you remain in my word, that's what he says here. A couple things that we got to see here is one thing is that we cannot separate the person of Jesus from what he says. And, and people do it all the time. They say they'll believe in Jesus, but then you talk about the truth that he says that they're big fat sinners and he's the only savior. And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm fine. I can do him anywhere. And they're not really believing or understanding the Jesus of the Bible. Or the Jesus that is proclaimed. Now, when he says, when you stay in my word, he's, the direct context is the word that he has been speaking to them this whole time. It's the word that's found in the Gospels. But we know it extends beyond the Gospels. And actually, we can broaden that application to the entire Bible, can't we? That, that, that there's a truth that you and I have to persevere in. 
that you and I have to remain in, that you and I are comfortable in, and we cannot separate the truth of what Jesus says and faith in Him. The two are directly connected. The truth of what Jesus says is who He is and how we are saved, as we are going to see, it is that truth that actually sets us free. Word here for abide, and I like this picture. See that guy? He's hot. He's in a fox. He's in a foxhole. He's in, he's in a trench. He's in the middle of war, but he's, what's he doing? He's smiling. That's his home. The word for abide, Jesus is going to bring up, the word for remain or continue is the word that is translated later on in John chapter 15 for abide. It means to stay. It means to remain. I, I chose dig in uh, because that kind of illustrates how you are, to, in, in what context you are to remain. Uh, so Jesus is saying that, that th- this individual, the person who has really believed in him is the one who is going to stay in his truth. So it is not the action of staying in his truth that saves us, is it? However, the action of staying in his truth reveals the salvation that you and I have. That's what he's saying. I'll tell you what, you guys continue in my word, then you are a true disciple of mine. So people are saying all the time that they, they believe in Jesus, but then they abandon his truth and that we have to be able to question their belief at that point. So what does it mean to remain? I like, again, I like that, or abide. I like the translation uh, for abide better. Uh, what does it mean to abide in his word? So we, we definitely know we have to receive that word. Uh, we have to accept that word. And that word needs to take a place in our hearts, in our lives, in our souls uh, and begin to act in our lives. But first and foremost, to abide in His Word means to o- obey it, doesn't it? I mean, you can't say, we can't say that you and I are followers of Jesus Christ and not obeying His Word. As a matter of fact, He says later, He says at one point, if you love me, you are going to do what? Follow my commands. You're going to obey me. Um, so as the result, it is showing that the result of what has happened in our hearts, that we love him, uh, we show a love for Jesus Christ by obeying him. It's not just feeling-based. Our love is actually expressed in obedience, and that obedience means that you and I are saying no to sin, primarily. What else does it mean to abide? So the, the person who remains is someone who actually seeks to understand his word better. So it's not just a book that you and I pick up and we're like, ah, I did my duty, I did my Bible study, I'm over and done with it. You know, I listened to Pastor Mark preach, I'm, I'm good for the week. If, if the only, only Bible time that you're getting is through me up here, well, first of all, I feel bad for you because, you know, you're going to need more than that. But if the only Bible time you're getting is on a Sunday, that's, you know, that's not enough. I'm not saying that you're not a true disciple, but what I'm saying is that, you know, we got to be desiring more and more and more. And, and to, you want to seek to understand His Word better. It, it becomes an interest. It becomes a, 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 a program in your life. We find it more precious. We value it. We actually begin to say that we can't live without it. We find it more controlling in our lives. It becomes a controlling factor. So when we make decisions in our life, 
Uh, we're not just saying, you know, ah, I'm just going to do whatever I feel like, or I'm not just, you're not just making decisions based on the crowd. You're not just making decisions based on your own feelings at the time or the advice that you're given. You're making decisions based on his word. It's actually beginning to shape your life. And the person who abides is comfortable in it. Kind of not bristling at it. Just like that guy in the foxhole, we find it, we find that this is our home. We stay in it. We remain in it. And then finally, you and I defend it. You and I defend it. I want us to see something. This is in the context. All of these things, this remaining in the truth, is in the context of a world that is constantly fighting against it. This is how this is carried out. Where people are attacking the truth and attacking the people who hold to the truth. And trust me, we may not experience this on a grand scale right now. It's coming. And those who have trusted in him are going to show that by staying in this world. This is what we need to say to new believers. Jesus constantly reminds new believers or those who are professing faith in him that, hey, this is going to cost you something. I think that one of the biggest problems that we have is we're not, we're not letting people know that truth. Jesus demands our all. And one day, the truth might demand it too. But it has two glorious results. Look at the results that he says here. What are, what are the two of the results? You will know the truth. First of all and foremost, you will experience the truth. That's what this word for know means. So you experience the truth in your life, and that experience of the truth does what? It actually sets you free. How many people have heard this taken out of context in your life? Please. Am I the only one who's heard that? Okay. The truth will say, come on, the truth will set you free. What's really, really funny is uh, the other day, I finished the sermon Wednesday, um, and Wednesday night, The Eternals came out. How many people have seen it? It's not a great movie. Please do not waste your life by watching that movie. It's not really that great at all. Anyway, The Eternals came out. We're watching a movie. I'm watching a movie with my daughter. There we are watching it. And these aliens, there's always aliens or something. They invaded someplace or whatever, and they're trying to get them to figure out, you know, the truth. They learn the truth, right? And they have to go and they have to tell the other Eternals about the truth. And the one guy goes, do you think that they will accept it? And the other girl goes, and she doesn't say it, she signs it because she's deaf. And she says, of course they will, it's the truth, and the truth will what? Set them free. And I said, in my, in my, in my sermon, I wrote, People like to, instead of separating Jesus from, from his words, they separate his words from Jesus. And, they, and I'm like, can you please stop borrowing the words of Jesus? Because that's not what he's talking about at all. It's not the truth in a given context, though there might be some truth to that, where the truth, you know, you get that guilt, telling, you know, it's not about liars. It's about liars and everyone else who sins. The truth is the truth of the gospel. The truth is the truth that he's about to tell them. 
that they are slaves to sin, believing in Him, trusting in Him, holding on to that truth, trusting in that truth, that's the truth that sets you free. No other truth is going to do it. And that is the truth that you and I are to proclaim and remain in. Brings us to our next point. Uh, Those who are true disciples, those who uh, remain in His Word, those who have experienced the truth and are set free from that truth, live free. So they live free, verses 33 uh, through 36. So again, these guys have some issues with what he says, and they, they answer him. We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. I just, I've got to stop there because I don't know if they forgot about Egypt, but they must be talking about themselves because it's, they, were in, they were slaves in Egypt, so I don't know if they're just speaking personal experience, but if they're speaking personal experience, they're not really free right now, kind of under Roman, Roman rule. So what they're talking about, not quite sure, but I, I see what they're saying. They've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them and he said, truly, truly, verily, verily, it's very important what I'm about to tell you. I say to you that everyone who commits sin is a slave to, of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. You know, you can own a tiger. Anyone know that? And you know that um, getting a tiger cub is actually cheaper than some fine pedigree dogs? Yes, figure that out. You want a pet? Okay, wants a pet? Dog's too expensive? Get him a tiger. So it's, they say it's comparable. So they're incredibly cute. They're fun, except that in the space of just two years, they can become adult tigers, weighing several hundred pounds and shred their owners to pieces. What's more notorious is that they, uh, what's, uh, what's more is that tigers are notoriously untamable, very, very fickle beasts. They could be playful at one moment and absolutely deadly the next, making no distinction between human friends and human enemies, I would say human food. When casual big cat owners realize that they can't control their own tigers, they take them to a guy. His name is Joe Taft. He's the founder of Exotic Feline Rescue Center in Indiana. Uh, it's a sanctuary for abandoned wild animals. Now, while they're there, they, they don't breed the tigers. However, sometimes accidents happen. Cats will be cats. And there you go. There's a little baby tiger. Um, so what they'll do is they'll raise baby tiger. So Joe, Joe Taft, take, took in a baby tiger. So he takes in this baby tiger, the tiger begins to grow, and all of a sudden, Joe has a quintuple bypass surgery. So it's hard enough when you're a healthy individual taking care of a tiger. I, can, I, just, I can't believe I've said that multiple times now. But I imagine, and it got really difficult for Joe as he's trying to recover from his quintuple bypass surgery. Um, as a matter of fact, it became way too difficult for him to control his tiger. So what did he do is he built a fence in his own house. He builds this fence around his couch. And I guess he made a little gateway to the bathroom and maybe a little gateway to the kitchen, but he was fenced in in his own home as the tiger roamed around freely, keeping Joe a prisoner, prisoner in his own home. Folks, there's an illusion out there in 
in the world, uh, even I think sometimes within Christianity, it is the illusion of freedom. It is the illusion that you and I, apart from Jesus Christ, are ever truly free. We're not. We're trapped. We're trapped in our own homes. We're actually trapped by our own hearts. We're trapped by our own sinfulness. Sin is the master of our houses. And though you and I can kind of move about in our cage, we have limited freedom, right? There's only one master, it's that, it's that tiger. You and I are actually in bondage to sin. And there is only one person, one truth that can set us free from sin, that is Jesus Christ and his gospel. That's exactly what Jesus says here. As a matter of fact, to say this to these guys is Jesus is not holding back any punches from these individuals whatsoever. In order to say this to these guys would blow their minds because, and what's weird is they're not even stuck on the sin issue. These are guys who are later on going to say they have no sin. These are guys who think that everyone else are the big fat sinners. And now these guys have a problem uh, because they're going to start using being Abraham's descendants. And they say, look, hey, we've never been enslaved. We've never been enslaved in our lives. And Jesus is like, guess what? You're, slave, you're slaves right now. And now we begin to see whether or not these people have truly believed. And where it ends up is actually the complete opposite of where it all began. Slaves. That's what he tells them. And he tells them that there is only one person that can set you free, the Son. So here in this whole passage, we begin to see that the truth and the Son are one, right? That's what he's saying. The truth that sets you free is the Son that sets you free. And the truth is found in the Son, especially when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the truth is the truth of the gospel. What does it mean to be a slave of sin? And we're going to talk about the direct application, and then I'm going to kind of broaden that out a bit. Um, so what, what's it mean to be a slave to sin? Well, what Jesus is doing here is he's basically saying our deeds confirm our master. Uh, what we do reveals who's in charge. Now, we got to focus on this word commit, because everyone's like, I commit sins all the time. And I do too. I probably, you know, throughout the day, who knows how many sins are committed. So is he saying that if someone commits one sin, then they are a slave to that sin? That's not, that's not what he's saying here. So the word for commit is actually in the present tense. Um, so it's present active tense. So that means committing all the time. So you live a life, a condition of habitual sin over and over and over and over and over again. Now you're, we're going to talk about that because I know people are like, well, wait a second, I have this problem. I can't get over it. We're going to get to that in a second. But he's basically saying that that condition, habitual sin, this is your life. You live for sin. Sin's your master. You're not really thinking about the righteousness of Christ. You're not really thinking about Jesus Christ. You're not thinking about the truth that he has explained. And you're not trying to live a different life. You're under bondage and you are obeying the master of sin. And it's funny because people think they're free to do what they want. They're truly not. They're in bondage to their own self. They're in bondage to that deceitfulness of sin. And the thing of it is, is they like it. And that's why people don't want to believe in Christ. They don't want to be set free from that. 
But if, we're, if they were to ever try to, which they won't, they could never break free from that sin. They have to obey that master. People are not free apart from Jesus Christ. They have a limited freedom. The more they sin, the further enslaved they are. And that's going to apply to Christians as well. It ends in death, and they cannot free themselves. Now, sometimes you can break free from certain sins apart from God. You can break free from certain sins, but you cannot break free from the master. You always will fall into other sins. There's an interesting story about Bill Wilson, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. For him finding, uh, being the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, he was uh, named Time Magazine uh, top 100, one of the top 100 people of the 20th century. However, Bill Wilson never found true freedom from his addictive behavior. One author noted that despite his victory over drink, Wilson remained incurably addictive. He chain-smoked himself into terminal emphysema. As a matter of fact, even on his deathbed, he puffed incorrigibly as he suffocated. He did not drink for the last 37 years of his life. However, he always, always craved alcohol. As a matter of fact, as he lay dying in a semi-delirious state, he repeatedly demanded whiskey. Back in 1951, Wilson wrote this, Any way you look at it, it's a problem world. Although he battled the problem of alcohol addiction, he gave in to other obsessions. Matter of fact, Wilson was also serially unfaithful to his long-suffering wife. He had innumerable affairs and a long-term mistress with whom he contemplated eloping to Ireland with. Despite his program's insistence on rigorous honesty, Wilson lived a lie. The program might have set him free from alcohol, never set him free from the master of sin. And I'm not saying that those programs aren't important and that they can help people. They really, really can, and they do. But I'll tell you what, we may get out of one thing. You ain't getting out of that master unless Jesus Christ sets you free. That's what Jesus is saying here. You will be truly free. When we believe in Christ, you and I change masters. Now, we're going to deal with the fact that that master, sin, is still kind of present in the house, isn't he? Uh, Because there are times that we do what? We go back to that master. And maybe you're wondering here, and you're like, well, Pastor Mark, okay, you're saying, what, what if I'm in a habitual sin right now? You may be sitting here, and you may be in a habitual sin. Is it possible for a Christian to be in a habitual sin? My answer would be yes. It is possible. Is it good? No. Uh, It's possible. Look at what Paul says in Romans. And Romans is a great place to, uh, especially in the the middle part of Romans, when it talks about dealing with sin. So this is a little plug for the Salvation 101 class. When you and I believe in Christ, when we receive the truth, you and I are justified, meaning he declares us righteous and we are saved from the penalty of sin. So we won't go to hell. We, we enter into eternal paradise with, with Jesus and with God the Father and the Holy Spirit and everyone else. 
Um, the second part of salvation happens in the present tense. It's happening right now. Second part of salvation, you and I are being saved. So we are saved. We were saved. We are being saved from the power of sin. This is where God's Word comes into play. This is where God's Holy Spirit helps us say no to sin. Uh, this is called the sanctification process. You know, Paul says here in Romans 6, for sin shall no longer be your master. When he says that, he's kind of given the possibility that sin can be your master. Sin can be Christian's master when they do what? Willfully obey him. And what happens is, is Christians sometimes get into a habitual sin and they begin to obey it. And I'll tell you, the, I'll tell you right now, the more that you give into that, the more you're going to want. It's never going to be enough. And sin is a very, very hard taskmaster on your life. It's only going to destroy you. And the more you give in to that sin, the more enslaved you will become to it. And you can grieve the Holy Spirit. This is why all the warnings in Scripture and all that does is going to lead you to death. Paul talks about this, the, the struggle in Romans chapter 7 when he says, I, I don't do the things that I want to do, uh, and I, I do the things that I don't want to do. And he talks about this battle, this law. Praise be to God through Jesus Christ who sets me free. But if you're sitting here and, and you are kind of callous towards it, uh, because you've got to be careful because our relationship to Christ is kind of is seen in how, what our relationship to sin is. If you're sitting here and you're coming in week after week and you're just sinning willfully and you can care less about it and you're just giving into it and you're just like, ah, Jesus is going to forgive me, you got to wonder, did you change? Are you really free? Did you take his grace lightly? Sin results in death. Sin results in broken relationships. It results in a broken fellowship. And it's only going to make matters worse in your life. If you're habitually sinning and you are a child of God, He's, he's not going to let that continue. He'll, he'll deal with that. So maybe you should probably, through His grace and through His help, deal with that before He says, okay, enough is enough. Christians should not live that way. We've been set free. Why would we want to go back to a master that only destroys our souls? It doesn't make sense. Jesus gives a little mini parable here, and they would understand it. The son has the rights to the house, the firstborn, and if he's the one who sets the slave who doesn't have any rights free, then they are free indeed. The other slaves, they just, they just go. That's what he's letting them know. They never thought they were in slavery, but really the truth of the matter is, apart from Jesus Christ, all of us are in slavery. We can be the freest people in the world, but be enslaved to sin. And we can be held in a prison for the rest of our lives, but if we're free in Christ, that's the only freedom that we need. It shows that something is happening in our lives or that something already happened in our lives. It brings us to our third characteristic, 
Uh, true disciples make headway, and I'll clarify that, that point here as we, we finish up here. True disciples make headway. Uh, verses 37 through 38. So he says to them, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you have heard from your father. Anyone know what that is? These are my science people. There you go. Thank you. Thank you. All right. We're awake. Now you're asleep. You're like, oh, Pastor Mark's going to talk about DNA. I know nothing about DNA except for that picture. It's like a chain thing anyway. So many pastors, I'm one of them. I hope that I've challenged you today to dig into God's Word and to meditate on His Word. Many pastors challenge their hearers to meditate on Scripture, right? That, that's normal, kind of common. There was a teenager in France uh, who took this idea completely in the wrong direction. An article in Live Science reports that 16-year-old Adrian Locatelli, a French high school student, transcribed parts of the Hebrew book of Genesis and the Arabic language Quran into DNA. After transcribing them into DNA, do you know what he did? Boom, baby! He injected them, both thighs. Injected the Bible in one thigh and the, the Quran in the other thigh. And I love your response right now. It's kind of funny. You're wondering, yeah, he wanted, he wanted God's Word literally in his life. So he injects them one into each thigh. So D- DNA is just a really a long molecule that can store what? Information. Mostly, it stores information that living things like ourselves use to go about their, our business. But it can also just be yours, used to store any kind of information that can be written down. So he said, I did this experiment as a symbol of peace between religion and science. And he, th- he said, I think it's really good for people to inject themselves with their religious text. He said he didn't experience any real significant problems, however... One thigh did get pretty inflamed at the injection site. I don't know if that was Genesis or the Quran. I'm not going to say which one that was. But, but obviously, there was a result to injecting Bible DNA into your leg. So why, why use this illustration? This is not what Jesus is saying by make room for his word in your life. He doesn't mean to write it down into DNA and inject it into your thigh. However, he does mean that spiritually, doesn't he? Because what was the result of this kid? I, I just can't imagine him doing it. He's pretty smart if he could do that. Injecting, it was inflammation, right? And DNA has information that helps things do what? They operate. Jesus says something here, and I flipped it. I flipped it to the opposite effect. Jesus says something to his opponents. And he says, look, because my word has no place in you, you are doing this, and therefore there is another word that has a place in you. What are they trying to do? They're trying to kill him. Do they really believe in Jesus? I don't think they'd want to kill him if they, if they really believe in Jesus. And he says, you want to kill me because my word has no place in you. The, there's a translation kind of disagreement for this. Uh, the word place here means means to, to move from one place to another, which makes sense. So they've moved his word into their hearts. 
And then it actually can also mean to make movement or to make progress. Or I like one translation, one guy commentator, he says, it actually is operating in your life, right? So if it's operating in their life, then they are revealing how it is operating. They are making progress or making headway in a different direction. Number one, they're not going to want to kill Jesus anymore, right? If Jesus, if his word is in their hearts, they're probably not going to want to kill him. They're going to be his friend. And, and that's one of the, the, the big things that takes place is we've gone uh, from being an enemy of Jesus to being his friend, to following him. Uh, that is showing that the word is doing what? Making progress in our lives. Being a disciple means that Jesus' word is operating in us. It's moving us in a different direction from where you and I were headed before. It's changing us. The number one change is we've gone from being his enemy to being his friend, and then that word continues to do what? Operate. Now we have to continue to ingest that word, we have to continue to delve in that word, but one of the signs of being a true disciple of Jesus Christ is change. It's change. We've changed. We've changed in our relationship to him. And we've changed in our relationship to others as well. The change specifically from being his enemy to his friend, but brought in and out. A disciple is a learner. It's a student that reveals their progress. The progress is because the word is progressing and moving in their souls. It is the very function of his word in our lives. Disciples are learners in the truth that they learn and experience, they apply. And as they apply that, that word begins to change their life. and begins to transform them into the one who has set them free. So here's the question. How's the word progressing in your life? Is it progressing in your life? Have you noticed a distinctive change? Folks, if, you, if, if we've been Christians for many, many years now, and you're still in the same place that you started from, you know, wonder about that. When I look back at, at what, what I was like when I was a youth or a youth in my Christian faith, I, I, was, I was a punk. I was such an idiot. I look back at who I was, and I say to Sarah sometimes, I don't know how you married me. I mean, that was God's grace blinding her eyes to the truth of who I was. And, I, and I'm thankful. And I'm, I'm not sitting up here saying that I, I've arrived. No, by no means. Um, and this passage has really made me realize just how far I need to go. But I've changed. I've changed from, I used to fight all the time with people. I mean, I used to fight with people all the time. I used to beat them over the head with the Bible. I was prideful. I was uh, arrogant. I just thought I was, you know, God's gift to the church, whatever it was. We just had, you know, you're young in the faith. And what changed me? This, this. Face, coming face to face with this and coming face to face with the sin in my heart coming face to face with the truth that Jesus gives us. And now I'm like, you know, a little bit further ahead. But change, change because of his word. 
it should be doing something if it's in us, right? If it has a place in our lives, it should be changing us. It should be transforming us. It should be motivating us. We should crave it more, just like Peter says. How, you, you are to crave the word like what? Newborn babies crave milk. You ever seen a newborn baby wanting milk? They're going to let you know. Why? Because they know they need it to grow. And as I said before, if, if this is the only diet of God's Word that you're getting week after week, it's going to be more than that. That growth is going to be minimal. There's a direct correlation to our spiritual growth and the Word. A direct correlation because the Word is working in our lives. And the more that you and I allow God's Word to penetrate our hearts and our lives, the more we are going to look like Jesus. Make headway. Progress. If you and I are true disciples of His, we should definitely not be where we first are. We should definitely not be fighting against him like these guys are, right? And that's exactly what they're doing. They want to kill him. And Jesus acknowledges something here. So we, we, this is like a transition. The next, uh, next verse is a transition verse, and it's kind of hard sometimes to figure out where, where it goes. Jesus really begins to drop some serious bombs on these guys. And think about where this started. Believers. Now what does he say? Uh-uh. Not even close to the truth. Whose word has a place in their hearts? Satan's. That's what he says to them. He says, look, you want to kill me? Because my word really is not in you. So he's kind of flipped it. The true disciple remains in the word, and the word remains in the true disciple. It has a place in his heart. Whose word has a place in their heart? They're listening to someone, and it's Satan. Satan fights against Christ. Satan doesn't want people to be free. Satan wants you to sin. Satan wants you to disobey. Satan doesn't like the truth. This is kind of a scary verse, and it gets much, much more frightening as this passage goes along. These are guys who teach what? God's Word. On, like, it's their lives. And they teach other people about God's Word. And they're not even listening to God's Word themselves. They're listening to the Word of Satan. And he introduces... And he, I love how Jesus does it, because he just says, your father. Now they're all up in arms. They're going to be up in arms. The next, next passage is just absolutely insane, what Jesus says to them. But he's getting their attention. They're like, what do you mean, father? What do you mean, father? We have no other father. And they keep going back to the Abraham's descendants. And Jesus acknowledges a physical heritage with Abraham, but not a spiritual one. I mean, when we think about this, you know, this is serious stuff. If we reject Jesus' word, we accept the devil's word. There's sin. If we reject obedience to Jesus, 
and do the math. Who's it work out to we're following? Jesus is directly linked to his truth. We cannot separate the two. True disciples are defined by Jesus' word. Two areas. Jesus gets to say what a true disciple looks like. We don't. What does he say that a true disciple looks like? Related to his word. They remain in his word. They've received the truth. That truth has set them free. And that truth continues to make progress in their lives. Everyone else is listening to someone else's word that is not Jesus's. And Jesus wants every single believer to hear this word to them. Father, thank you for your word, capital W, your son, uh, that it is in him, it's in his truth that we find true freedom no matter where we are. Lord, we know that it is by grace, through faith alone, that we become your children. But Lord, help us to see what you have said to us here today, that that truth is revealed by our response and continued response to the truth that has set us free. Lord, help us in a world that does not believe this truth, help us to remain in it. Help us to trust you. Help us to continue to fight the good fight of faith. Lord, help us to realize the freedom that you have given us in Christ and to live lives that reflect that freedom, no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. Lord, help us to continue in obedience to that truth and continue to make progress as we become more and more conformed to the image of your Son. And it's in His precious name we pray these things. Amen.